is Angela, and this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Manapro Homestead. Animals are an important part of our lives. That's why we help them grow and thrive, treating them as well as they treat us to make their lives as best as they can be. Manapro, nurturing life. Visit manapro.com and follow us at Manapro Homestead. This episode of Homestead Education, Mandy and I obviously are here today. I'm very excited, very excited personally about this episode um, because I think if you have animals, you've ever had animals or plan to have animals, it's important to not only find a vet to care for those animals, but as the homesteader, as the farmer, we're usually the first responders. And with that said, I think it can only help. It can't hurt to have enough knowledge to sort of act quickly when we need to. It's the same reason as we learn CPR or um, you know any other sort of first aid uh, uh, tips and tricks. So Mandy is a veterinary professional and she's gonna get the spotlight today Um, I'll contribute when I can, but we are going to talk about basic triage for animals on the homestead, what we need to know to kind of quickly assess the situation, react properly, hopefully do more good than harm, and um, what is in our first aid kits. So let's get started. Yes. Good? Yes, absolutely. Um, I agree with everything you said. I think it is so important to not only have a relationship with your veterinarian, we can kind of touch on that here in a minute. Um, but right. We're always going to be typically the first line of defense. Do you see your animals every day, multiple times a day? So, you know, them inside and out. Um, and you are the ones that are going to pick up on any of those changes, whether they're small or big and kind of know, Hey, something is not right. Maybe I need to look at this. Um, maybe I can do, you know, a few, remedies or something like that and or when to actually get a veterinarian involved. Um, So when we, and we can just totally jump right in, Um, when we talk about, uh, you know, basic triage, um, I think it's important to understand what triage means. I mean, a lot of us watch, you know, TV shows or whatever, um, listen to podcasts and you hear the word all the time. Um, I believe it's a French originating word, and it it actually means to sort. So, um, you know, all the way dated all the way back, you know, into wars, things like that. When you come across a situation, um, and I guess back backing up a little bit, the word kind of came about more so in like disaster type of situations where there's always more than one um, human or in our situation where we're talking about animal to essentially treat um, or triage. So you look at, you look at a group of five cows, um, and you say, okay, um, one needs attention more than three, but four definitely needs more attention than three or one. So you are lining them up in a very, and when when we say this, I mean, like this is happening in seconds. So you look at them and you say, this one is obviously the most critically ill, the most injured or what have you. That's the one that you're going to help first. So it's more of a a very broad term of like a disaster response or war type verbiage, but we use it all the time in the homestead. I mean, 
it can happen to any of us, you know, a storm or, um, you know, a parasite burden or something like that. And you have multiple animals who are ill. You, you, you treat the one, um, or ones that seem and, or that are the most critically ill first, and then you kind of go down the line. So that's really what triage means. Um, and like I said, you're looking at them and this is an assessment of their, their full body. So obviously we can only see what's on the outside, but you know, their demeanor, you know, you know, their appetite, their water intake, all of those things and what they should be, what they normally are. And so those are the first things that you're going to notice or be able to pick up on. Um, and then going down the line, you, you can get gain in information by looking at the animal you can gain information about like their cardiovascular their musculoskeletal those types of things actually by looking at them um so gosh i have i have i overloaded anybody already or have i overloaded you already no definitely not i mean it, this is a topic that we could i would love to absolutely talk about all day i think it's fascinating um but it's so so critical and i think it would do a disservice to anybody who is hoping to homestead and just hasn't gotten there yet, that if you have animals, something's going to happen, especially yeah. if you free range your animals in any capacity, you are going to run into injury. It's the nature of what we do. They yeah. exist. And if you're giving them quality of life where they're out and about playing, foraging, doing their thing, you're going to run into unexpected. I mean, some are definitely more gnarly than others. Some are obviously going to be pretty difficult to handle and deal with. Um, speaking from experience in that front and Mandy as well with Zazu's leg, you know, unexpected accidents just happen, which is all the more reason why we need to talk about all these things today. Yeah. Well, I think that's really kind of what happens most often, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you can prepare for a parasite burden. You can prepare for like bumblefoot in a duck. Like you, you can have all of your supplies and that's not really like a huge, huge emergency. You know what I mean? You see it, you can get to the treatment. It's not like you have to sit down and, and do it right that second. But we, as homesteaders, you will absolutely deal with something that is emergent at some point in time. It is just, like you said, it's just nature of the game. So being prepared and kind of just having that mindset so that you, you know, the first time um, you have a major injury. So your horse, your cow, your sheep, your goat, whatever it is, your dog, your livestock guardian dog, your barn cat, um, you know, Maybe your horse or your goat gets their foot stuck in a fence. So completely an accident, right? Um, mm -hmm. Bound to happen. You've done everything that you possibly can to try and prevent it. Um, we say all the time in regards to horses, and we learned this all the way back in school, horses are born trying to die. Mm -hmm. So you can like put them in a bubble wrap or put them in a padded room and they will still find a way to injure themselves. So it's really just trying to be one step ahead. That's an, that's another thing that always try and just be one step ahead of your animals. That way, when you go outside or what have you, and you see, Hey, uh, so-and-so is injured, you feel prepared. Um, I think it's probably important to also note or bring up that the main difference between human and animal triage is we in the veterinary, you know, medical profession, um, we have the ability to humanely euthanize animals, whereas we don't obviously do that with humans. 
Um, and so that's something else, um, very touchy subject. I get it, but it is something to definitely keep in mind. That word humane is very key. It is very near and dear to my heart. There is appropriate ways to do those types of things. And honestly, sometimes that is the best answer for that animal. Um, sometimes that leg will not be able to be fixed or their quality of life, um, is not going to be what it was. Um, you know, so every situation is going to be different. That all goes back to that word triage. Um, but with that being said, that's why, and Angela brought it up at the very beginning. That's why it is so important to have that veterinary client patient relationship. So in those types of emergencies where you go out and you're unable to, you know, you assess the situation, you do your triage and you say, gosh, I think that unfortunately, um, what is going to be best is going to be humane euthanasia. Um, that's something where you would get a veterinarian involved. Um, 9.9 times out of 10, uh, we won't go into, you know, everything else just being, just being who I am as a professional, you should always get a veterinarian involved in those situations if you can. Um, yeah. Do you think, I think for not only just because there's probably some morbid curiosity and it, you know, people like to hear stories, they're entertaining, but do you, we both can, do you want to tell some war stories, some things that you've come across in your time with animals as a homesteader? I mean, you brought it up, you brought up Zazu. Um, I mean, uh, Casey and I left the farm. Of course, those, these things happen when you're not home. Right. And of mm -hmm. course somebody else is watching your animals and you do everything you can to prepare um, everything is the same. Um, essentially long story short, Zazu, um, must have kicked a stall door in the barn. Um, and some of the fencing on the, like the wire parts of the stall came loose, um, poked into his hawk, which is uh, on the back leg, um, of the horse, kind of like where you would kind of like their knee, if you're trying to vision it and you don't know, um, horse anatomy, um, and any joint issues in a horse are just kind of like very, very scary. A lot of times, honestly, can't be fixed. And with these larger animals, um, you know, horse, cow, even some very large goats and those types of, um, animals, it's hard to treat, um, leg injuries and stuff because those animals can't be three-legged. You, you know, your cat can hop around on three legs or dog can hop around on three legs as they heal, but these animals can't. Um, so he had a, a very small puncture, very, very small, like smaller than a dime, um, into his hawk, which, um, impacted his upper and lower joints. Um, you know, and so a lot of things in those situations, they come in into play cost, um, care of the animal, things like that. There's always going to be, um, well, this is all very important. I feel like there's always options, right? I want everybody to know that there are options. So, you know, when you go car shopping, there's, you know, this, the beat up truck or like the souped up Cadillac. So there's, it, there's not just like a one size fits all. And I think that's really important to know when you're homesteading, because if, if we're honest, finances have to, and they do come into play in a lot of these situations. Um, so circling back, he had a very bad joint injury. He was three-legged for a while. It was very, very scary. We had a vet out here, I think about seven days in a row. Um, one actually told us to euthanize him. We elected to go with, um, middle of the road and, um, now he's sound. Um, and you know, so that's a, that's a happy story. 
I have seen um, ducks and chickens completely mangled yet still alive from, um, you know, predators, what have you. And in that situation, you're going to humanely euthanize them because they're suffering. Um, I've had a goat um, jump out of a stall and break her leg, like shatter it. Um, you know, so those, those types of things are just, you don't really plan for that. Right. I mean, those things don't happen to everybody, but if you go down to the barn, if you see that, if you know how to assess the situation calmly, um, because you're prepared, it's just, it's just going to make the whole situation better. You're going to feel better. The animal is going to feel, feel better. Um, and it, it, it's just, it's just better that way. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, what have you seen? I know, I know you see it, it's, it's tough. It's, I mean, we could probably talk about it all day. It's, it's I just mean, the nature of it. It is. It's the nature of it. So I guess you have your typical things, right? You've got bumblefoot, horse abscesses, unfortunately, colic. Some um, cases I was able to treat mm-hmm. uh, successfully on my own. One required surgical intervention. Yes. I've had ducks come back, absolutely mangled skin hanging off from heron attacks. Um, I mean, crushed bones and ducks. I think that the most disgusting thing I ever had to deal with was I had a duck come home and she was acting very odd, kind of um, hiding on the stream bank. And so I went up to her and I realized um, her eyes were poked out. She had had a predator that had put its jaws, its teeth around the top of her head and sink it into her eye sockets. Turned out she lost one eye completely. The other eye was still in there. It was just so much blood. I was able to get that cleaned out and restore sight, but then infection set in. So I battled that. Um, happy story. She's fine. She got she got over it. We got through it. Yeah, thank you. But I mean, I think you said it earlier, and I don't want to gloss over it. You have to be calm. You cannot freak out. And maybe that's why I say homesteaders have grit. I mean, I'm sure there's more reasons than one, but it's, I don't want to, I don't want to dumb it down and say, you're just performing a series of tasks, but you go into a moat, moat, you know, like I had this gosling that had gotten into the the big ducks water bucket. It was freezing to death. Like I had been not home and it had obviously somehow gotten in the larger area of the coop and it was so close to death. Don't freak out. Just go into action. Talk yourself through it the same way you would talk a friend through it. Use your phone. Look yeah, things call. up. Or call, call a somebody. mentor. Yeah, yes. I mean, you have in, you have so many resources that folks from a previous day and age did not have. Um, yeah. Call your vet. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, yes. Being calm is just it. We can say it for a third time. You know, um, because again, for a fourth time, you're going to encounter these things. Yeah. And um, it's only going to make the situation go smoother. Um, but it all comes back to preparedness and um, just knowing, you know, all of these things that we've talked about are not even half of the things that we've experienced. And some people might not experience any of these. It might be something totally different or, you know, you're definitely not going to probably experience all of them. Certainly not, you know, in your first year or two or what have you. And they're species dependent, you know, like call it for a horse or bumblefoot for the poultry, those types of things. Um, You know, but I think 
you hit the nail on the head. You just have to walk out there and just know, okay, this is how I should handle it. Let's just, let's just take action. And yeah, grit, you have to have grit. It's almost like being, you're, you're kind of like a nurse or, you know, it, it kind of just like signs you up to be some type of a little bit of a medical professional when you decide that you want to raise animals, especially in more rural settings. Um, you know, some folks live an hour away from, from town and some things are an emergency and you might have a great relationship with your veterinarian, but they just can't get to you very quickly. So you're going to have to figure out how to try and keep that animal alive, comfortable, stable, um, until you can actually have a little bit more help. So I don't know if you want to go into potentially talking about, you know, what we, the, and we can put a lot of this in show notes. I can do, um, some, some first aid kit information, but we can also run through some of the the few things, or I say few, I think I have, I don't know, 30 something on, on this list. And there's a, I feel like it's basic. Um, but a lot of this stuff is, you, you might have it laying around your house. Um, the interesting thing that we learned in school, I can remember the the class that I was in and the, the statistic is human and animal medicine are about 80% similar. So I don't mean that you're going to do... Um, you're going to do the same thing for, you know, Um, that you're going to do for your cow or your horse, but the medications or are a lot of the times the same. So they, they overlap and we're talking about, you know, the over the counter medications. Well, and some actually prescribed as well. Um, so I don't know. Do you want, do you want to go into that? No. Yeah. What I was thinking is just, let's do some basic assessment. I'll give you a scenario. Maybe you can talk about what we should do. And then once we run through a few of those common instances someone might see, we can talk about what we both have in our first aid kits, what you would recommend. Yeah, that's fun. Let's do it. Okay. So one very common thing we always talk about, if you have poultry, chances are you're going to see bumblefoot. Let's start there. Okay. What do we do? 
Yeah. So a lot of times what you'll have in your arsenal for Bumblefoot, you'll go out and you'll see, you know, the bird is limping or a little bit more just stationary and you can assess. So Bumblefoot is kind of just like um, for it's hard to describe a lot of these things without using your hands. You can't see and draw. We're not able to like draw a picture for you, but essentially like a cut. Um, and then kind of infection gets in essentially is the, the, the basic of a bumblefoot situation. It's like a pocket of infection and you need to release it. Um, otherwise, you know, it just continues to get worse. I've never had a situation where it does, but you will read some things where it goes untreated and those types of things can become systemic, meaning the infection would go into the bloodstream. I think that's probably relatively rare, um, but worth noting. So, um, most people can treat bumblefoot, um, with bringing that beloved animal inside most of the time you're bringing them to your kitchen um unless you have like running water in your barn or what have you but you want it to be warm you don't want it to be ice cold um and you're soaking the foot soak at the foot with epsom salt so epsom salt is something that you should keep in your arsenal that's over the counter it's like two dollars at any walgreens target walmart whatever it is um and so you soak it sometimes you're doing it a couple times a day and by soaking i mean like they sit in there for 10, 15, 30 minutes. Um, most of the time they actually like it. And um, sometimes that will kind of just like loosen the skin a little bit and the infection will kind of clear um, in some, in some like a little bit tougher cases, you can actually like puncture it again. So the puncture and then your infection gets in most of the time it seals over, which is what creates the bumblefoot. So then you can actually kind of dig out it's terrible, but it is. It's kind of like digging out the infection if the Epsom salt and those baths don't don't release it. Also noteworthy that you want to wrap the foot after you're soaking it or definitely after you are, um, you know, clearing or digging out that infection to kind of keep it clean as it heals. And so that's where your gauze or your vet wrap. Um, some people call it Coban. Um, all of these things, you can get at the feed store or online. Um, you know, veterinary pharmacies are all over the counter. Um, some people in these situations will honestly use maxi pads, some people or diapers. Um, we use diapers for horse, for horse abscesses. Yes. Because they're more absorbent sometimes than the gauze that you can get at the store. So bumblefoot is something I think that most people will absolutely run into. I've never had a case where I've not been able to fix it. I've also never had a case where I've had to give any type of antibiotics or anything like that. Most of the time you're not doing that with poultry, um, and it's pretty, pretty straightforward. And more often than not, people can recognize Bumblefoot by that sort of visual signature, which is a black scab. Yep. Right. And that's yep. what it's, it's a staph infection, essentially. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Most of okay. yeah, the time. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, husbandry plays a role you can, but you can have the cleanest coops, cleanest, whatever. And it just happens. They're out, they're scratching around or, or waddling around sticks or whatever it is bound to happen and it's very treatable. All right. So let's move along. I want to talk about what chicken owners might struggle with. It is, let's say it's a good old fashioned Minnesota, Wisconsin winter. The mm -hmm. high for the day is zero and you've got a rooster out there and you're worried about its little comb getting frostbite. Yeah. So how do we prevent it? How do we treat it? 
Yeah. So preventing it, I think is the very first thing is, is your coop ventilation or whatever your barn ventilation. So a lot of folks want to, they really want to like close all the windows, close all the doors, um, in the winter. And yeah, you definitely want to close some, I don't know if anybody, you know, if you follow us on Instagram and you can see we have those big windows that flap open. We will close them, but I don't lock them. So they can still, a little bit of air can still kind of seep through if, if it's windy or anything like that. Um, so husbandry is pretty key for frostbite. We have had frostbite here. We've actually had animals, I say animals, we've had chickens or roosters, specifically um, loose toes because of frostbite and you can do everything that you possibly can. Yes, absolutely. I will send you a picture, Angela, because they're still here and they're living and they heal. Is it Hank? Um, uh, Hank, Hank did absolutely lose some toes, um, in frostbite. And we have one actually hen that did, um, two years ago and she's still here. Um, but prevention, uh, you know, if you can, Again, ventilation, husbandry, but, you know, Vaseline, those types of balms, a lot of um, myself included, a lot of us make like a homemade salve or balm that you can put on the comb and also the wattles. Don't forget the wattles, especially if they're big at night. And it just kind of protects them. It's kind of like how we put lotion on our hands when they're chapped and you go outside or you're, you know, you put chapstick on your lips if a very windy day if you don't you 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 can tell that your lips are windburnt or chapped same thing will happen to those those combs and those wattles what do you do if it is frostbitten yeah so a lot of times people want to warm it very quickly those types of things you do not want to do that you really want to avoid that so with the two that lost their toes I, they lived in their garage for a while. You really honestly just kind of manage the wound. So no warm water, no heat, no external like heat lamps on it. A lot of times, you know, that will just exasperate the pain. And, um, you know, if it's to the point where those extremities are black and you know that they've been frostbitten, they're likely going to fall off. So that would be when you're going to step in. You're going to manage the wound after, you know, a little bit of the tips of the comb or the wattles or, you know, God forbid, the toes kind of fall off. They will become necrotic. So that's when the skin dies and um, they fall off most of the time. So um, well, I should say all the time. Um, if they become necrotic, you don't pull it off. You let it happen by itself. It's a long process, sometimes like a month or more. And um, then you can start putting like a, a spray is better. So you're not actually rubbing with your hands to put like a balm. Um, Vetricin, Manapril makes a, a really good, I'm, I'm blanking, like a hen healer is like a, a, a balm that they have, but I'm blanking on the, the spray. But again, everything that you can get. Um, over-the-counter at, at any feed store um, or online. If you don't have a feed store close to you, something that's is very um, key, I think, to keep in your arsenal. And then, you know, they return back to the coop. So I guess it's probably noteworthy to say if you've kept a bird away from the coop for a month or more, do a slow reintroduction. They've lost a toe. They're feeling a little bit sorry for themselves. And so maybe <laughs> maybe don't just throw them right out there. Um, but yeah, again, most of the time, very, very treatable. And like I said, we have a few and they're, they're still running around Hank. Uh, yeah, there's a testament to that. If you follow Mandy on Instagram, she has a rooster Hank, which runs at lightning speed out of the coop every single morning. I would have not guessed that he had 
less digits than other yeah. roosters. So that's his, good. His digit, digits are short, shorter than they should be. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, All right. So very, very common. Very common. Okay. So I want to move on to something which I think we touched on already and certainly um, is a possibility that it could happen. I want to touch on open wounds. I want to touch on that in a matter of not only punctures and, and abrasions, but also um, Mandy's in a good position to talk about this now because she just disputed a cow. And so you might have like an open burn wound. Yeah. And so is the treatment for both of those situations the same? And if not, what are we supposed to do? And then also, if you could just kind of touch on how do you know if the puncture is too bad for you to be yeah. treating yourself? Um, so in, in regards to your first question with managing just like a laceration or a puncture just on like the body of, um, typically, I mean, I guess a bird poultry, but usually mammals, things like that are going to be the ones that you are going to, you know, they deal with the fencing, things like that. They're going to get scraped and, and bruised up a little bit more. Um, and then yes, Marge was disbudded or dehorned. We do the same thing with baby goats. You manage those things a little bit different, quite often you're not actually doing anything after those animals are being disbudded or dehorned, um, which is the process of removing the horns. It's, it's typically done for safety, not just for the human um, or humans that are going to be caring or raising the animals, but also for the animal itself. Most often you don't do much. You can spray. It's kind of like they get itchy and they will sometimes rub them on fencing and like they might bleed a little bit. So that's when you could potentially put like a salve or something on most Opportunity leaving them alone. So punctures are totally different ballgame. Um, and fencing, what if they got kicked? What if they got bit? You know, we're talking about a predator, something like that. They, you know, a little bit of an attack, but they got away. Uh, in regards to assessing the the depthness, it's depth. It's really uh, well, I mean, in my opinion, uh, and everybody's probably gonna have a little bit different. I would say if it's any more than like a couple or a few inches um, long and deep. And by deep, I mean like if you, and I'm using my hands again, you all, but you can't see me, but you know, it's same if you were to get a wound on yourself. If you can't put your hands there and kind of close it, maybe with like a butterfly strip or a bandaid, you know, gosh, I think that this might need stitches. It's deep enough to where the skin has kind of peeled away to the point where it's, it's spread out so much that it needs closure and, you know, a, a gauze or a bandaid is not going to keep it closed to heal appropriately. That's when you would need to get a vet involved. I myself have, have stitch up animals here myself, but I mean, I don't recommend doing that. I mean, you, you certainly can, if you are a medical professional, um, but that's something so easy. Um, and a lot of veterinarians actually love to do it. They love, they love to treat punctures and things like that because they're pretty simple and straightforward. And most of the time they heal great. Um, but a lot of times they're not, they're not a situation that you need stitches. You know, it's not, it, it might be a couple inches long, but it's not so deep. They just scraped it. Again, going back to salves, things like that, but really it's keeping clean. So um, you can kind of flush the wound. And by flush the wound, if you have some like sterile saline or something like that, great. That's what we would do in practice to kind of get any debris out of it and then clean it. So clean it with some chlorhexidine solution, iodine, whatever you have. Again, all of these things you can get at your local feed store or online. So over the counter. 
Um, and then, uh, depending on where it is or something like that, if you're able to bandage it, great. Um, you know, there is truth to be told some wounds, uh, should breathe. And so maybe they're bandaged initially to kind of keep debris out. You cleaned it. Let's keep it clean for a few hours or a day, but sometimes it's actually good to get a little bit of air circulation back to the wound. So if it needs to be dressed by dressed, I mean like bandaged. Then when you're changing the bandage, maybe you leave it off for, you know, a little bit so that, you know, you can, you can assess it number one. Um, but it does start to heal a little bit better that way, but uh, very common. It's going to happen. I promise you it's going to happen with your dog. It's going to happen with, with something. And most of the time you can treat it at your home. So one time I had this duck that came back from its, its little swim time uh, to come in the coop for the evening. And it, it's literally like the whole breast, it's belly the skin was hanging off and you could see all of the muscle, the meat underneath. It was just like it had been cleanly stripped. There wasn't as much blood. Maybe it's because it was swimming. Uh, but in that situation, I had a vetricin spray, antibacterial spray. And because the blood had already been cleaned off, it was just about sterilization, getting rid of any infection that might be setting in. I mean, it might suck for the for the injured animal. It might sting. You just, you got to do it. You got to spray it, hold it. And then for that situation, I wrapped gauze around the entire body of the bird with the skin back in place. I don't know if it was supposed to do this. It did graft itself back together. It worked. Yes. yes. And and we were, we were good. And so I just, but Mandy touched on this twice already. Let's touch it on again. When you have an injured or sick animal, you're not just removing it from the general population of your barnyard family members for its comfort. You're doing it because it's also sanitary. Like you don't want to immerse a bird struggling with keeping infection at bay in a general coop where everybody else is, is, you know, creating output. You don't want it to be swimming in a stream where it could be exposing it to bacteria until it's a little bit healed over. And in addition, there's a lot to be said for pecking order, rubbing up against fences to itch things that are healing. I mean, there definitely does need to be a little bit of a quarantine period or quarantine period, correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Sanitary. I mean, you can, you keep the cleanest barn, cleanest coop. It's still, there's poop and dust and that's just the way it goes. So yeah, that is, that is a very, very good point. Yep. But yeah, that you did a good job. I mean, the body is an amazing thing, not just human body, animal body. And so, yeah, a lot of times they just kind of heal on their own. Um, so good job. Yay. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So talk to me about, let, let's jump down to heat stroke because I want to go to the other weather extreme. Um, what are we looking for and what do we do? Um, so, I mean, you don't see it, I guess. I, I wouldn't say you see it a lot in, you know, cattle, horses, those types of things. Heat stroke is a little bit, um, it's, a, it's dramatic. Um, we see it more in dogs. And so um, it is noteworthy to understand that most of these animals are going to acclimate, right? But um, 
if they're not acclimated or if they don't have the appropriate shelter, you know, they need shade, water, a lot of times electrolytes, those types of things. Um, then yeah, it, heat stroke can absolutely set in and it is deadly. I've seen plenty of dogs in my time die because of heat stroke or have to be humanely euthanized and it's terrible. Um, it's not super common, I wouldn't say, but you know, heat stress, maybe we should call it heat stress. Um, so making sure again, adequate water, adequate shade, those types of things, um, with your birds, you can do stuff like frozen treats. Um, our goats will like like frozen bananas and stuff like that. So a lot of times their water intake and their food intake, if it's so, so hot, will actually deplete, which you need, you need to keep it up. They have to, they have to be drinking in order to just sustain, you know, typical body function. Um, so adding those electrolytes are key. Uh, so what you're going to see if an animal is kind of just like stressed out, um, a lot of times they're like, they're lethargic, they'll be panting, those types of things. Sometimes their mucous membranes will get pale. Um, they'll kind of just be like dull in mentation. Like they're kind of just like dazed and looking around that type, that, that extreme is more of like a heat stroke. Um, if you're headed that way, that would require veterinary intervention. Um, a lot of us want to, again, bring that animal inside where it's cold or dunk them in cold water. Do not do that. It has to be very gradual. If an animal is dealing with some very heat related illness, you do not want to go from one extreme to the next. It's going to put their body into shock. Um, and so, you know, with heat stroke in practice, we will, we will very slowly bring the body temperature down. Um, so that's like very slowly cooling the paws, like in dogs specifically, cause we're going to see this more in your, in dogs and other animals, but you're cooling the, the paw pads. Um, but it's a very gradual thing. So, yeah, I mean, it all goes back to prevention though. And this, I mean, most of the time, honestly, the animals are going to be acclimated and you can prevent it. So we're like, we're putting, you know, bombs or salves on the combs and the roosters to try and prevent frostbite when it's so, so hot. We're giving electrolytes in the water, making sure everybody has water, maybe multiple water stations. If they, if you have like a bully in your herd, you know, you want to make sure everybody is able to get the appropriate amount of hydration. So let's talk about, um, maybe one of the larger causes of dehydration, which is diarrhea or mm -hmm. what do they call that for goats and sheep? Scowls or something like that? Scours. Scours. Scours, yeah. Scours, yeah. you see a lot, um, you know, when they're younger, things like that. I mean, I, <clears throat> I, I still just call it diarrhea, um, when they're older. So yeah, that can be a, that can absolutely be a cause that will lead to dehydration. So totally separate from any heat related illness could be parasite driven, could just be a general, general illness, you know, um, as a whole, uh, but dehydration, just like with people, um, can lead, uh, or I'm sorry, diarrhea can lead to dehydration. Um, and it just, you know, makes sense. You feel yucky. Um, your body is depleting whatever is in there, whether that again is parasite or just a general, um, we say ADR, um, means ain't doing right. It's very, um, not professional, but that's what we say in the, it's like, really, it's, they're just like, um, a general malaise. So that's just like, eh, I feel icky. Um, maybe I have some diarrhea, uh, it's going to lead to dehydration. So replenishing those fluids is key. 
So sometimes with these animals, um, you can't say, Hey, can you drink some water? Um, in my arsenal, I have fluids like sub subcutaneous fluids. A lot of that's something that you have to obtain from a, a veterinary clinic. Um, most often, uh, but you can also drench these animals with like a drench gun or something like that to try and get some, or a syringe or whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, you don't want to, you know, uh, choke them or cause them to aspirate, but some fluids getting down is, is very crucial. If the body is depleting it, you have to replenish it. One interesting trick that I picked up from a stable one time was that if you have a horse you suspect is going into some sort of a colic, you need to get some water flowing through their body. Mm -hmm. Um, You could put lifesavers in their water bucket because it flavors the water to mint and it encourages them to drink. So it's cool when you start Mm -hmm. to learn little tricks like that. Yes. Um, Okay. So let, let us go ahead and segue into bloat and colic. I think that Anybody who has a horse, unfortunately, this is going to be something that you're always worried about because it can be deadly. Um, bloat, not only for dogs, but sheep, goats. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about what to look for. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like the the general, and I'm going to probably put you on the spot and you can talk about colic because, I mean, you've actually literally dealt with it um, with, you know, your own horse. And so it is very, it's it's a tough situation. They don't all present the same, but it is going to most of the time present with all these animals. Bloat and colic um, is kind of just like that general, uh, like I'm not eating. I'm kind of moping around. I'm not going to the water. Something's a little bit off. Sometimes you will see a complete depletion or um, cessation of they're not pooping, those types of things. So you're like, oh gosh, okay. So the GI tract is just kind of like not functioning appropriately. Um, let's let's try to investigate, you know, what what's going on. So in your situation, what did you actually clinically see? Dozer, right? Yeah. So yeah. It, it always kind of start begins the same because it has she is prone to it. So it's happened more than once. Yeah. Um, the first sign is she's always a big chow hound. She stops eating. Um, that's my first signal that something is wrong. Usually she's no longer passing manure. I know it's really bad when she doesn't want to stand up and she's just insisting on laying down. Um, they could be kind of nipping at their, at their flanks, um, you know, scrunching up the legs as if in pain. Walking is, essential because it helps that horses are designed to walk. It helps to keep their digestive tract going. Um, but I always call a vet out and at least ask counsel as to how, what sort of situation we're dealing with, how severe do they think it is? I stay in contact throughout the process, monitoring water intake, monitoring output. If there's no output, the vet is coming out to intubate the horse. Um, horses cannot vomit. They're bodies are not designed that way. So what they have to do is stick a tube in through the nostril and um, essentially they run that tube through the nostril up into their head and it comes out all the way into their stomach and they can release fluids that way and see what's coming out into the bucket. Um, If there's a lot of water in the stomach that comes out into the bucket, it shows they're not absorbing their fluids. Dozer got it so bad that she had to be emergency trailered to the vet and uh, she did require surgery. She had a 10% chance of survival. She survived, we went forward with it, but they removed three pounds of feed from her stomach. And it wasn't because she got into feed and just overate. It was because her stomach, her intestines, um, I think it was her hind, 
gastrointestinal mm-hmm. tract yeah. had twisted, but she kept eating anyway. And so it was just all backing up. And because she can't vomit, it caused a real big issue. Yeah. Um, a lot of horses don't survive that. It is yeah. very rare and fortunate that she did. So first signs, um, really it's about prevention it to, to begin with, encouraging walking, water, um, not overfeeding grain, always having fresh hay and forage available, salt in order to make them thirsty, heating up their water to encourage drinking in the colder months. I mean, gosh, there's just so many yeah. things that you can do. Yes. But it could go on and on. Yeah. I mean, and it's different for every animal. Um, and, you know, I think it's really important to, to note in that it fits perfectly right here. A lot of these animals are very stoic. Okay. So you, it's, you look at them and you know, your animal, I know you do, um, you know, you as a whole, uh, you know, up and down, but you look at them and you can, you can kind of tell maybe something is off and sometimes they hide it. Um, you can be very, very good. And sometimes they hide it. But now have you dealt with it? Colic with a goat? So we call it bloat um, in goats. And yes, um, it's been a few years. So there are commercial things that you can use, like bloat release and something like that. Essentially, it's like with the rumen, you see it in cattle as well. It's like the rumen just kind of builds up with gas. It's a little bit different than colic or most of the time it presents a little bit different, I I should say. Um, So it's like they're... Uh, the four quadrant stomach with these, with their, with these ruminants, basically just kind of like fills up with gas. Um, so when we say ruminants, you know, that they ruminate their food, that's how they digest it. So they'll stop doing that. They'll go off feed, you know, they're, they're not drinking water and it's like, you can kind of ping their stomach. And, um, when I say stomach, like their side, and you can tell it's like hard as a rock. And so you have to release that gas in order to uh, essentially return them back to normal. Like I said, there are commercial things that you can do. Um, gosh, I've seen it in cattle. I've never seen this done it with a goat, but I've seen this on like large dairy operations where they will actually like stick a huge needle um, into like the side of the animal to, to release that gas that way that'd be more of like an emergent thing and, and some and a lot of times you're you're definitely calling a vet out for something like that i've never seen it done in a goat but it, it could be i mean i'm sure it, i've never personally seen it that doesn't mean it's not done um but it all goes back to again prevention small meals those type of things not overfeeding grain making sure that they're drinking they have their minerals just like keeping a balanced diet you don't want to like these animals um specifically horses and then your ruminants we, we talk about it all the time with dogs um, and your house pets, your veterinarians always probably drill this into you. You see it everywhere. You know, you don't just like give them something random to eat that's completely wacky compared to their normal diet. If you're changing something, do it gradually. See how they're going to respond. Those types of things. I mean, uh, you all know what to do. Yeah, I know. I know you know what to do. And it's just kind of putting all of these things into um, motion, you know, when we go with, with that notion of saying, you know what to do, going back to like using a maxi pad. Do you think that some like veterinarian wrote in a, a book, a published author, Hey, you should use a maxi pad on this wound. No, some random person just, you know, decided, Hey, this would work very well, you know, and it got circulated. It's just kind of using your brain, knowing like the basic steps about all of these things. Um, because you're the first line of defense. So I think we could keep going all day. We could talk about so many more 
ailments. And maybe we'll have to do in season two, another yeah. sort of let's Q&A Dr. Mandy. Um, <laughs> but let's go ahead and talk about very quickly before we close, what are some supplies that maybe we have or haven't mentioned already that are in our first aid kits? Okay. I'm just going to kind of go down a list that I have formulated. We can put this in more of maybe like a condensed version and show notes if, if you all want that. Um, okay. So and this is really a no order, um, but this is what we keep in like our very, um, I don't want to say basic. It's not, it's not basic, but this is an overhead of, of a first aid kit. And I would say 99% of these things you can get over the counter or at a feed store. Um, so, and like I said, in no particular order of importance, but, um, okay. Bandage supplies. So gauze, vet wrap, bandage tape, those types of things. Those will go for all species that we've talked about. Gloves. You want them to be sterile gloves, not going to reuse them or anything like that. And before we go any further, this is different than like a kitting kit or a lambing kit. Um, or calving, a lot of these things will overlap, but you will have a few different things in those types of, and again, maybe an episode for next year. Totally. Thermometer, that way you can just gauge, again, all species, um, Vaseline, some type of salve, this will go for wounds, frostbite, whatever. Sometimes you, if you don't have lube, you can use Vaseline. You wouldn't want to use it necessarily like a salve or something like that. You put like herbs in, but you can use Vaseline to take a temperature because you don't want to stick the thermometer up there unlooped. That's not very kind. Um, chlorhexidine, iodine, those are going to be things that are going to clean your wounds. Again, they can go over all species, needles, syringes, most common, your need, uh, your syringe size is going to be three CC or three mil. Um, and then six mil, uh, you get bigger and, and most of the time you're not necessarily needing those it's, unless we're talking about cattle or, or something like that, where you're going to be administering a lot of <clears throat> injectable medication. Um, and then usually a 22 gauge needle, 20 gauge needle, remember 20 gauge needle is going to be larger than 22. As the number gets smaller, the needle gauge gets bigger. Epsom salt, we talked about it, tweezers, electrolytes. Um, scissors, a drench gun. So sometimes when I say drench gun, you know, if you've ever had to give your animal, your, your dog, maybe a pill, we call them pill guns. So sometimes you have to administer medication that way. There's also drench guns that we've talked about for hydration. You can, you can use a syringe. <clears throat> for small animals as well. Over-the-counter medications, um, just very basic. Benadryl, famotidine, um, which is like for upset belly, pepsid, vitamin C. So we give vitamin C to the goats after kidding. Um, penicillin, LA200, which is an antibiotic over-the-counter. Again, you can get your feed store. Then you get into a lot of the other things that will be need to be veterinary prescribed. But if you have that client-patient relationship, a lot of times you can actually get those and keep them on your homestead. They will teach you how to use them. Heat lamp, um, bullet release. It's commercial. I can put a little link to it if anybody's interested. Blood stat powder. So um, this would be, you know, used a lot of times you use these types of things. If your dog, uh, if you trim the nail too close, a uh, little trick. If you don't have blood stat powder, cornstarch works very, very well for those things. Not flour, cornstarch. Um, and most people will have that around their home. 
uh, stethoscope is, is great. We, I mean, you keep it, it's good to obviously assess and listen to their heart, but hear gut sounds as well for these horses, cows, goats, sheep, wire cutters are on our list. So if you have ever have to trim fence, if you have like a foot caught or a leg or a hoof or something, you need to get them out really quickly. Um, a blow dryer, um, you know, if you're, if your gosling got stuck in freezing water, if your baby goat got stuck in freezing water, uh, it's good. We keep a blow dryer in the barn, pocket knife, flashlight, because these things really honestly, most of the time happen when it's 10 degrees outside and four o'clock in the morning. Um, pen and paper to write down things you can write down there, um, their vitals or what you used or maybe what you used up and you need to replenish. Um, gosh, we could probably go on forever, but those are a clean bucket. Um, you know, if you're, uh, cleaning a wound and you need some clean water and mixed with like some chlorhexine, you're not going to want to use like a dirty feed bucket. Even if you rinse it out, let's just have a bucket for medical purposes only. I like metal, like a stainless steel, anything would work. Plastic would be fine. That is basically what we keep in the arsenal. Most of those things, again, you can get at a store, you can get at Walmart, Target, Walgreens, and um, can be used pretty much across all the species that we talked about. None of them are very expensive, and you will thank yourself to have most of these things on hand before an issue uh, happens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you pretty much got everything that I keep in my... Um my little first aid box as well. The only other things that I keep in there are drawing salves, homemade and purchased for horse abscesses, um, just some brand name, name items. I keep Vet RX for giving poultry vitamins and you know just sort of upping their nutrition if they're sick. Banamine is huge for me to have on hand because it reduces inflammation in horses who can colic. Just yeah. simple, it's like it's like Advil, basically anti-inflammatory. Um, I also have issues. I've had issues with the horses scratching their eyes, just, um, you know, if they've been itching or maybe chewing on some fencing or something on their stalls and there's like a little splinter, they might scratch their eye on it if yep. they're scratching their head. So I keep atropine, which is a prescription steroid. You have to have that good vet relationship in order to get that in case there's an eye ulcer, but just in general, um, a uh, triple antibiotic ophthalmic ointment is a must. Very important. So yep. yeah, we keep that around. Um, then you start getting into other things. Some people swear by apple cider vinegar. They're, that's a controversial point. Mandy and I could talk about that another time. Essential oils. Again, we can talk about that another time. Some people love colloidal silver. Um, and then you also get into other things like tillin and other injectables. But again, we'll do that another day. I mean, I've gone as far with mastitis for a goat, I put cabbage leaves on her udder. So, I mean, I'm not above it. And, you know, there is some theories behind it. So not to say that, that you can't try those things, but a lot of times, um, I mean, given just my profession, I mean, these things, these medications and things like that, they've been studied for a reason, for a purpose, right? So, but definitely get it. I get the, I get the, you know, wanting to go natural and all of those things. But yes, that's what we keep as a whole in our first aid kits, um, try to keep, I go through maybe twice a year, try to just make sure you look for expiration dates, all of those things, make sure they're stocked, um, and ready to go because these things will happen. Um, when and probably least, more than once, yes, and probably and more they than will once. happen when you're least prepared or yes. least expected, I should say. So being prepared is key. 
And I hope that this was helpful. Again, like you said, we could talk about this forever. We can definitely do another Q&A or something like that. Um, but I think we covered the most, the most common things that you're definitely probably absolutely going to see. Yeah, I absolutely think so. And uh, I think another episode like this is a good idea. We could get some custom requests for uh, putting Farmer Mandy on the spot here. <laughs> um, okay. If you have any questions, you know we're always here for you. Check the show notes. We'll always put goodies in there for you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at wildoakfarms. We'll see you next time.